I want to ask the rest of you to open your Bibles to Psalm 19. We are continuing a series on, uh, on the Psalms that we've been doing this summer. Uh, I know the summer's a time when we're sort of in and out, so we've just been selecting various Psalms, uh, not randomly, but intentionally to give us a sampling of some of the different types of Psalms that, that you'll run across. Um, you know, if you were to just flip through and, 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 you know, randomly put your finger on any one of the 150 Psalms, uh, chances are you'll, you'll find something that says something about praise the Lord and how uh, wonderful uh, the Lord is. And those are Psalms of praise and thanksgiving, and, and we're familiar with those, and, and those, uh, the, those types we took a look at at the beginning of the summer. Uh, but that's not the only kind of psalm there is. And, and so we've also been intentional uh, about uh, recognizing the, the variety of, of psalms, but to also validate some of the stuff that's going on in our hearts that, A, sometimes we don't want to acknowledge because those are they're, they're dark things, uh, or B, if we, if we are aware of what's going on and we don't like it, we don't really know what to do with it. And so we looked at... Uh, you know, one of the psalms that was just a really angry psalm, you know, um, where evil is done to us, and our first reaction, frankly, is just to get even. And uh, those are called imprecatory psalms. And so what do you do with the anger that's, uh, that's in us that rises up? How does the gospel address that? Um, last week, for instance, we looked at uh, a psalm about repentance, like when we just get bowed up and hard-hearted, and we don't want to change. And how does the gospel address that stubbornness and that defiance that's, that's within us? Uh, this morning, we're looking at a psalm of wisdom. There's about 10 different wisdom psalms uh, that sound a lot more like they belong in the Proverbs, to be honest. And these are the psalms that are good for us uh, to understand, how, do, how should I address God's law, his word? Um, what's our relationship as those who are forgiven because of what Jesus has done in his gospel, how should we relate to the law? And what's that about? So um, as, as you have your Bibles open, let's stand in honor of God's word. I'm going to read verse uh, chapter 19 in the Psalms. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the ends of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. 
Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there's great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Let's pray. Father, we do make that our prayer this morning. May the words of our mouths, the meditations of our heart be acceptable to you. Would you show us Christ? Show us the wisdom that comes through the gospel. We pray in his name. Amen. Please be seated. So I, I mentioned earlier, this, uh, this psalm sort of sounds maybe a little bit more like it belongs in the Proverbs. Uh, there are other psalms that have the same sound to them, uh, whether that's Psalm 1, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Um, that's a wisdom psalm. It talks about our delight in God's way, God's law, um, which, you know, is maybe not necessarily our first response to the law of God, um, delight, right? Is that something, a word you naturally associate with God's law and his commandments, the word delight and commandment? You know, if, if, if you do, you're, you're a rare bird. <laughs> I think most of us kind of, we don't really know what to do with the law. And we read about delighting in it, and, you know, like drippings from the honeycomb, and we just go, all right, I, I need help here. What about Psalm 119, um, longest psalm in the Bible? Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong but walk in his ways. So these are the wisdom psalms. Um, We're picking Psalm 19 for a reason. I have it uh, on a very good recommendation, to be candid. Uh, C.S. Lewis who you all probably all know, you know, wrote the Chronicles of Narnia, and he wrote some really remarkable books about why the Christian faith is not only, um, uh, uh, it's, it's not only reasonable, but it, it also just makes complete sense in terms of apologetics and so on. So, so that's, that's how most of us know C.S. Lewis, but I don't know if you were aware that, that he was also a professor of English medieval literature. He was a poet um, at Oxford and at Cambridge. And so he knows what he's talking about when he speaks with regard to literature and poetry. And it was C.S. Lewis's opinion that Psalm 19 is the greatest poem in the Psalter, the greatest poem among the Psalms, and for that matter, one of the greatest lyrics in, in the world. And so, you know, why not pick Psalm 19 as our wisdom psalm, all right? So what I want to do is is look at uh, how Psalm 19 points us to wisdom in the heavens. Um, You see that kind of in the beginning of the psalm. And then there's uh, the wisdom that is in the law. uh, And that's the second half of the psalm. 
But ultimately, as we look to Jesus, uh, we see God's wisdom in the gospel, and, and that's where everything coalesces. So let's, let's talk first about the wisdom in the heavens, uh, but I want to back up even further and just ask simply, um, for starters, what is wisdom? I mean, we, we sort of get it. It's not a foreign word to us, but if, if you were to be kind of cornered and somebody you know, demanded of you a definition of wisdom, how, how would you define it? What is wisdom? Wisdom, well, uh, one, one definition, I guess, is understanding how life works. You know, wisdom is, is understanding applied. It's knowledge applied, and, uh, and it's doing life well. It's like, um, in our more contemporary idiom, we don't talk about wisdom. We talk about life hacks, right? You know, how to do life well. Uh, there's a whole website devoted to, uh, to, to life hacks called lifehack.org, and its purpose, here's right off of that um, homepage, it, lifehack.org is the leading source of practical and adaptable knowledge dedicated to improving health, happiness, productivity, relationships, and more. Basically, it's devoted uh, to wisdom. So wisdom is an accumulation of life hacks. You know, Somebody who's wise gets it. Uh, and we go to them for advice. We go to them to learn, well, how can I live better? I want, to, I want to read to you that, that summary from lifehack.org again. I want to ask you to listen carefully and tell me what's missing. What's missing from, from lifehack.org in terms of wisdom, right? Lifehack.org is the leading source of practical and adaptable knowledge dedicated to improving health, happiness, productivity, relationships, and more. You know, all right, so they stuck on and more to just catch everything, right? So they didn't miss anything, right? No, but among the things that they specified, well, what's there? Um, well, wisdom with regard to how I can live better, right? Things like health and happiness and productivity. I want to, I want to, personally, I want to live better. It also threw in relationships, wisdom with regard to how to live and play well with others. Uh, how do I get along with people in my family, people at work, people at school? And I need some, some really practical, applicable life hacks and, and wisdom to do that. So you've got you know, personal wisdom and relational wisdom. What's missing? The vertical. And the problem is with uh, a lot of modern wisdom is it, it fails to remember what the ancients used to call the fear of the Lord. So, for instance, Proverbs 9, all over the Proverbs, by the way, you hear things like this. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Um, you see the fear of the Lord mentioned in Psalm 19, verse 9, right? And it talks about wisdom, that the, the fear of the Lord is wisdom. Um, so the problem with any, uh, any view of how to live well, how to live wisely, or you know, uh, anything in that category that, that misses the vertical element of you need to get your relationship with God figured out is missing the foundation of wisdom. Uh, and Jesus described uh, a well-built house, a well-built life that's, you know, it can, it can be a mansion, but if it is built on sand, 
storm comes, the river rises, and that house is swept away. No matter how big, no matter how small, no matter how ornate, or no matter how decrepit, it doesn't matter. If the foundation is poor, the house is in trouble. So the fear of the Lord is the beginning, the foundation of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. So that's what the ancients knew. Uh, We've got a lot to learn from them. In fact, uh, when you think about ancient wisdom and and Psalm 19, uh, you've got the wisdom in the heavens, um, that the the heavens declare the glory of God. The heavens point us to a healthy fear of the Lord. And, and, And the Psalms don't have the monopoly on this, by the way. Um, as, as far back as the 16th century BC, uh, people in China were studying the heavens to try to, to try to figure out, is there a correlation between what happens up there and what happens down here? And they were tracking things like lunar eclipses and solar eclipses. And, you know, the, we have a really remarkable... Uh, event a week from tomorrow, uh, a solar eclipse. Now, you have to travel six mile, uh, six hours uh, south to South Carolina to get into the the path of totality, <laughs> which I think is a great name. Uh, so, in order to be able to see the total eclipse, um, you've got to be down in South Carolina. But uh, but here we'll still have about eighty five percent of an eclipse. It'll be impressive, and. You know, so this eclipses have been happening for thousands of years. And in, uh, in China, uh, even as far back as six, 16th century BC, eclipses even then and even today are uh, met with what's called eclipse anxiety. There's a certain amount of fear and uh, anxiousness. There's a, a disturbance in the force uh, where people don't know what to do during an eclipse. And if I've never... I've never been in a total eclipse, um, and if you haven't either, you know, we hear anecdotally that people tend to freak out, and so do the animals, and everything is a little bit weird. Well, so in China, uh, the name for an eclipse, uh, was in, in, it was an article in Smithsonian, uh, was saying that the actual word for eclipse um, in China sounds like, uh, is very similar to the word for to eat, and, uh, and that's because the anxiety over eclipses in ancient China led them to imagine a a celestial dragon devouring the sun. That's what was going on in a solar eclipse. And so the emperor, who is represented by the sun, um, he's in peril of some sort. And so there's this sort of general anxiety about the eclipse and the emperor. There's the same thing going on in ancient India, the same thing going on in ancient Babylon, uh, ancient Babylon, 8th century BC. They're doing the same thing. They're tracking eclipses, keeping records, and the Greeks borrowed uh, the Babylonian records who maybe somehow uh, had some parallel with uh, the Chinese records. But that set the course for um, arithmetic and, and astronomy. Uh, all of that was going back to people just looking at the heavens and going, is there some kind of correlation going on? Um, so whether it's astronomy or, or other things, uh, what you see from the ancients uh, is this capacity to look at the heavens and recognize the heavens has something to say to us. And, and this is kind of an interesting point, right? Because 
Well, all right, the, the Greeks were taking records of lunar eclipses and solar eclipses and, and starting to work those out and developing um, ancient astronomy and ancient mathematics. And, and we today, you know, think astronomy is, you know, good, hard, valid science, it's great. Uh, but we look at astrology and we go, ooh, that's kind of weird. And, you know, they use horoscopes and, you know, whatever. That's just voodoo. Um, but let's pause for a second and ask, what were the magi doing? The wise men who were looking at the heavens and charting, you know, planets and stars and so on. And, you know, they recognized something unique was happening that led them to Bethlehem to see the birth of, of the Christ child. And let me just point, point out a, a thing here, that astronomy, for all of its credit to be using the scientific method, is very wise in that regard. And astrology is very foolish to think that horoscopes, you know, somehow are telling us, you know, whether or not it's going to be a good day or not. At the same time, astronomy that tells us all about, all these wonderful facts about the heavens and the stars and the planets and eclipses and so on, is very foolish to think and to insist that the heavens are silent. They don't tell us anything about our origins. They don't tell us anything about a creator. In fact, all there is is all there is. And there is no creator. And there is no message. And that is foolishness. And this is going to get me fired, perhaps. But let me say this. Astrology, for all of its foolishness with regard to horoscopes, is very wise because at least it recognizes that the heavens are telling us something. They're declaring the glory of God. You know, whether, you know, we, we all know that horoscopes are bad. I'm going on record for that, right? So I don't get fired. But you see the, the parallel. So the wise person is the one that realizes, wait a minute, this, this isn't all there is. There, there is something that God is telling us about his glory, about his power, about his attributes. Uh, and, and there is nothing that is hidden uh, there's no way we cannot know uh, about the existence of God. Um, and, and what Paul tells us in Romans 3 is that we know it so well that actually the problem uh, with an atheist, for instance, is not a lack of evidence, but he's suppressing it. She's denying it. And they're not ignorant, uh, no matter what they say. So... What about there's nothing hidden from the sun? Uh, you know, when you read verses 5 and 6, it's like a bridegroom leaving his chamber and like a strong man that runs its course with joy uh, and its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them and there's nothing hidden from its heat. And we all go with our skeptical minds, well, what about caves and what about, you know, the ocean's abyss, whatever. The point is every place that human beings inhabit the sun exposes. And there's no human being that is not accountable for what we know from just what's called general revelation. Every place that the sun exposes is accountable and answerable to the existence and the, the, uh, the attributes of God. 
Um, Romans 1, the, his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So we're, you know, nobody can say, well, I didn't know. So when it comes to uh, the wisdom of the heavens, we, we all know it's there. Uh, and furthermore, the psalm points us to wisdom in the law. And when you look at uh, the, you know, these verses, beginning in verse 7, talking about the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul, and the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple, you see all these synonyms, uh, all these different words for God's word, um, law, testimony. Verse 8, the precepts and commandment. Uh, go to verse, second half of verse 9, the rules of the Lord are true. So all of these different ways, poetically and through repetition, of just saying how wonderful God's word to us is, his law. Um, so the law is, you know, helps us to see how life is to be lived. That law leads us to live wisely. It's, it's God's special revelation when he speaks directly as opposed to through the the mediation of the sun or the moon or the stars or whatever, right? So the the law shows us our duty uh, to ourselves. The law shows us our duty to one another. The law shows us our duty to God. The law shows us how to live well. The law shows us how to live wisely. Um, I remember uh, memorizing Isaiah 42, that it pleased the Lord for the sake of his righteousness to make his law great and glorious. And I memorized that because I knew I needed help. I needed help to appreciate the law. Um, I needed help because I recognized the disconnect in my heart where I, 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 I have a hard time. You know, just my instinct is not to say, oh, yes, God's law is like honey dripping, right? And you probably do too. That's, that's like, how do, I, how do I get there? How do I live in that place? How can I grow as a Christian to where that's really, that is my default mode. But I also want to encourage you, you're not far. You're not as far as you think. I'm not as far as I might suppose. And let me put it this way. Where would you and I be if we didn't have the law? We who have this sort of, um, we're not really sure how we feel. We're, it's, a, it's, a, it's a bit of a conflicting relationship with the law, sort of like this, you know, come closer but stay away. If we didn't have the law, where would we be? If we didn't have the law, you wouldn't be able to say, based on anything objective, it would just simply be your preference, and then if it's your preference and somebody else's preference, if you two disagree, then you have nothing outside of yourselves to appeal to. Therefore, you can't say something is right or something is wrong. It's just preference. Without the law, you lose rightness and wrongness. Without the law, you, you, you lose fairness. Without the law, might is what makes right. Without the law, power is what makes something fair. Without the law, Without the law, you and I have nothing to condemn a man driving his silver Dodge Charger into a crowd of people and hitting into a van that would then hit 20 people and kill somebody. You can't condemn that without the law. 
You can't, it's an unbelievable price to pay to say, no, I don't, I don't want the law, I don't need the law, the law is not for me. You can't do that. And at the same time, you, uh, you and I do have a sense of the sweetness of the law. It's the same sweetness uh, that we see when somebody uh, just checks all the boxes and, and they, they hit perfection and it's called elegance in mathematics or science when the formula just becomes as simple as it possibly can be and everybody stands back and says, yeah, that's it. And it becomes uh, the hat trick. It becomes the triple-double. It becomes a clean sheet. It becomes, you know, a, a no-hitter in sports. Uh, it becomes uh, when you have that alignment of beauty and form and color, and we go, that is beautiful. And when you have an alignment of the perfect temperature and taste and texture, and we go, that is yummy. It's like honey dripping from the honeycomb. That's what perfection is, and, and that's what the law gives us, and that's why it's beautiful, and that's why it's good. And so, yeah, we do this as well as this. So there's sweetness in the law, but there's nothing hidden from the law either, right? Jesus said in Matthew 5, do not think, don't get it into your head, don't imagine that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets, I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. We look at the law and we go, oh, I cannot attain that. Jesus looked at the law and said, I have fulfilled it. And the law exposes us. Much of our discomfort with the law is the fact that we know we're guilty. And I don't want to feel guilty. I don't want to feel shame. I want to feel like I measure up. I want to feel like I can do it. I want to feel like I've got what it takes. And the law says, no, you don't. That's my discomfort with the law, and that's your discomfort with the law. And we basically are left with three options. When it comes to the law, you can either dumb it down to the degree where it still takes a lot of commitment, a lot of effort, and like the Pharisees, you know, they kind of said, all right, well, we can count 623 laws, I think is what, what the number was. And, um, you know, we'll, we'll do our best to, to, you know, artificially make these attainable. It's still huge, and only a few people can do it, but those who can, you know, we're flexing and um, feeling really good about ourselves. But in the end of the day, when you dumb down the law, and then you wrongly, self-righteously claim to have met whatever that point is where you've dumbed it down. You know what that is? That's not wisdom. That's foolish. It's foolishness. And it's equally foolish to dumb down the law so, so far that it's just, you know, anybody can step over it, you know, and you just effectively, you're dismissing it. And that's foolish too. The only wise course for you and for me is to face the music and to acknowledge that God's law is great and glorious and nothing is hidden from its sight and it exposes every sinful thing in me and in you. And we simply go, okay, the jig is up. I don't have what it takes. And I need forgiveness. I need a pardon. I need grace, or I'm done for. And that's why the law and the heavens and 
general revelation and special revelation are all driving us to one beautiful conclusion, which is grace. I need the wisdom that comes from the gospel. How to be blameless is in verse 12. How, who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults, right? Declare me innocent. I know I have faults. I know I have transgressions. I want to live righteously. I can't help uh, recognize these, these problems. Declare me innocent nevertheless. And that is simply a plea for what's called justification. That's our religious word for it. It comes out of the Bible. It means just as if I've never sinned. I know I have. But God, in your grace, would you declare me as one who hasn't? And that is how we can live blamelessly. There's a, um, we were talking about the eclipse earlier. Let me show you this tablet from, from uh, Babylon. It's in uh, cuneiform. Uh, this is from, you know, right around the uh, 8th century B.C. And this tablet was dug up or found somewhere. And, um, and those who can, there are actually people who can read cuneiform. Uh, and they've transcribed this. And this is a tablet that talks about what to do in the event of a solar eclipse. Because there's actually a protocol. There's so much anxiety over what in the world is happening in the heavens and how is this going to affect life on earth that we have a protocol, so, so to speak. So um, one of the lines in this tablet reads, in order that catastrophe, murder, rebellion, and the eclipse approach not, the people of the land shall cry aloud for a lamentation, they shall send up their cry. It's this plea to the gods, Marduk or whoever, you know, protect us. And I don't know if it's in this tablet or somewhere else, uh, but um, that Smithsonian article I was looking at talked about how the Babylonians believed that an eclipse, you know, foretold the death of their ruler. It's this bad omen. And that led them to use uh, that solar eclipse prediction to put their kingly protections in place. And here's what the protection was. During the period of time that lunar or solar eclipses might strike, the king would be replaced with a substitute. This foe ruler would be dressed and fed like royalty, but only for a brief time. According to ancient Babylonian astronomers' inscriptions, quote, the man who was given as the king's substitute shall die. The bad omens will therefore not affect that king. The man who is given as a substitute shall die. Does that sound familiar? Um, in order to view the eclipse, you, you need these. Um, these, are, these are official um, you know, solar glasses. And by the way, we bought about 200 of these for a buck each because you can't get them anymore. <laughs> They're sold out. If you don't have these already, uh, grab one on your way out, grab one for each member of your family, uh, they're free. So, yay! You got something out of church today, all right? Um, but we all need these uh, to, to look at the eclipse. So you put these on and you watch as the moon moves slowly across uh, the, the face of the sun 
and it blocks out more and more and more until if you're in the path of totality, you actually see the area of the moon. It's, it's remarkable, actually, that the moon is at the precise distance away from the Earth that, to our eyes, the size of the moon is identical to the size of the sun. And when that moon passes right in front of the sun and they are in complete overlap, you, you for about two and a half minutes in the path of totality, you can take these off and go, wow, it's night. And then once that moon, you know, two and a half minutes later moves uh, across, then you got to put these back on. Because if you don't have these on, your eyes will be damaged. And the reason why we bought these for you is because these have the official, um, and these are approved by um, NASA's website, blah, 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 that um, these really are the real deal. And there are people, manufacturers out there who are selling eclipse glasses who know they are not to code. And if you buy them and you look at the sign, it could do damage to your eyes. And if you don't have the law, you and I have no reason to think that that is wrong. That kids could have eye damage because somebody wanted to make a buck. You and I want the law, but we can't live with it. But if everybody has faith in Jesus, if we look at God, if, if God who dwells in unapproachable light, right? If we look at him through the eyes of faith, through Jesus, who is mediating for us and blocking the, the righteousness, the, the white, hot righteousness and holiness of God, it's not, it's not his will uh, to, uh, to destroy anybody. It's not his will to consume anybody. It's just his nature, just like you and I can't look at the sun without having damage to our eyes. Our eyes are not compatible with that amount of radiation. Our lives are not compatible with that amount of holiness. We have sin, and God is just, and he will hold sin accountable. And the wisdom of God is evident in the fact that he's not only just, but he's also the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus. Because when we, when we look to Jesus, he's the one who died in our place, right? He's the one who took our place on the cross. He died as uh, one who died as a sinner. He took God's judgment for sin on himself, was buried in the grave, and then rose victorious on the third day. Uh, um, conquered sin, conquered its sentence, so that all who have faith in him, all of us who are wearing the eyes of faith, can look to Jesus and not be consumed. We are approved, declared justified. That is the wisdom of the gospel. That's the beauty of the gospel. And all of us need it. None of us can be without it. If you've never called on Jesus to be your savior, to take the guilt of your sin away, you need Jesus. And for all of us who have believed in Jesus and continue to look to him, we cannot go our Christian way without him. You don't start with him and then lay him aside. You keep him on. Ultimately, our, our prayer not only is, God, you know, justify me freely through the gift of your son, Jesus, but also let my life conform. Let my life be more and more wise. I want to live more wisely, and that's the prayer of Verse 14, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. I don't want to be a fool. I don't want to live foolishness. Give me a heart for wisdom. 
Give me a desire to live acceptably before you. That's actually the evidence of the Holy Spirit's work in our hearts to transform us. And the Old Testament's got a lot of wisdom in the Psalms and certainly in the Proverbs. The New Testament has its own wisdom book. Uh, it's the book of James. And last week I gave you some homework, right? You're supposed to ask somebody who cares about you and who you trust, um, what do you think I might sort of kind of should start thinking about repenting of? How many of you did the assignment? <laughs> a couple of hands. Good. If you didn't get to it last week, you, you could still do the homework. Your homework this week, read James. It's the New Testament wisdom book. And in James, uh, James says that faith, you know, looking at Jesus, faith by itself, if that's all we're interested in, is God, you know, declare me innocent. If that's all we're interested in, faith by itself, it does, if it does not have works, if it does not have wisdom, that kind of faith is dead. That kind of faith is foolish. God is not interested in declaring you innocent and for you to, me, to go about our merry way and not have a heart to live wisely. To not share in the prayer of verse 14, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. Jesus talked about the man who, you know, had bumper crop, things went great. God, thank you for all the good stuff I've got. And then he decided to himself, hey, I know what I'll do. I'll just build bigger barns and store everything up, and then I'll eat, drink, and be merry and kick back, and I don't have to worry about a thing. And God, Jesus said that that very night, God approached him, took his life, and said, you fool. Now he's going to have all your stuff. Jesus is calling us to live wisely. Don't imagine that everything is about you or me. But the way to live wisely is to live wisely with regard to God, to live wisely with regard to each other, to your neighbor, to live wisely with regard to what pleases him, what is acceptable in his sight. Psalm 139 says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. Let's make that our prayer right now. Father, we pray for our hearts to be desiring more of you and more of your kingdom. We pray that our lives more and more would be lived consistently with your word, your law. Would we be able to say more and more that your law is great and glorious and it is good and it is sweet to taste. Lord, we confess that we don't always find it sweet, and we want to run from it when we feel guilt and shame. And I pray that instead of running from you, we would run to Jesus and put our faith in him yet again, and know that he covers our shame and declares us innocent, and then gives us more of his spirit so that we can grow as his disciples. Please teach us to put away foolishness and to, to say we believe in God but then live like there is no God. Lord, we pray that you would forgive us. Forgive us for 
looking around the world and looking to the alt-right or the alt-left for answers when there are no answers except in Jesus? Or would you get glory in your church? Would people see what wisdom looks like, sounds like, feels like as they see and hear and experience life among your people? Please allow us to bring blessing. Make us agents and recipients more and more of your kingdom. We pray this in Jesus' name.